Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. You've heard some uh, horrific stories told by good people in a terrible situation. Good people who find themselves living with terrible chronic pain. You've heard people tell us that they've considered suicide. You've heard a pain specialist tell us on air that for the most acutely challenged people dealing with chronic pain, suicide becomes an option. And suicide happens. And the path to suicide begins with pain, then it becomes social isolation, depression, and then suicide. That's what the doctor told us. About a million and a half people in this country live with chronic pain every minute of every day. That's a lot of people. And these people, many of them, obtain a degree of relief that makes life possible for them from opioid medications that are prescribed by their doctors. And over a period of maybe a year, the patients and the doctors have become the villains. The patients and the doctors have become the villains. Doctors prescribe it too frequently, and patients take it too willingly. I was talking to a chronic pain patient who said, you know what you want to tell these people, Roy? Tell them to have somebody hit them in the spine with, a, with an ice pick for 24 hours. Then ask them again. But the doctors and the patients are the villains. I also spoke with a doctor a few days ago who said to me that it's not possible any longer because of the guidelines, which the doctor said aren't guidelines. The ones that we uh, talked about on this program, we spoke with the, uh, the editor for the 2017 Canadian Guideline to Opioids for Chronic Non-Cancer Pain from the National Pain Center. The doctor said they're not guidelines. We're being pushed. He said diabetes guidelines are guidelines. These are not guidelines. We have to follow them or else. And the doctor said, if I prescribe, if I have six patients, that's the number that I was given, if I have six patients who receive more than 90 milligrams of um, opioids, then I'm put on a watch list. Now, there'll be people who say, no, that's not the case. I'm just repeating what I heard. And the doctor said, I cannot any longer give the patient, I no longer feel safe giving the patient the amount of opioids I know the patient's going to need in order to live comfortably because I invested 12 years to get my medical license and I can't afford to lose it. So there are doctors talking about fear, being fearful of losing their medical licenses for caring for their patients. But the propaganda machine continues to spin wildly and point to the patient and point to the doctors as being the problem. And here's a statistic that I've heard repeated time and again, time and again since the, uh, since the guidelines came out by media people. And I'm quoting directly from the guidelines. The use of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain is accompanied by significant risks. In Ontario, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems doubled between 2014 and 2013, from 8,799 to 18,232. 
and like parrots. Some people just repeat that over and over and over. Read it. Read it. It's one sentence. Read it. Uh, in Ontario, two sentences. In Ontario, annual admissions to publicly funded treatment programs for opioid-related problems doubled between 2004 and 2013 from 8799 to 18232 Where does it say in those two sentences that all these people, all these individuals, all these cases were opioid patients? Where does it say, where does it give you any sense of what percentage were opioid patients? It's not there. But when you read it, it makes you feel as though they must have all been opioid patients because they're the only ones who are causing problems or have problems. When I mentioned this to the editor of the guidelines, he said on the, on the air, yeah, you're right. We don't know. We don't know what percentage is what I call uh, the generic addicts. And I don't mean any disrespect to people who are in trouble. We don't know what percentage are generic addicts and which ones are the opioid patients. We don't know. So why is it in the guidelines? Um, there's another one here that's just a, a two lines down, and the editor brought these up. Overall, one of every 550 patients started on opioid therapy in Ontario died of opioid-related causes, a median of 2.6 years from his or her first opioid prescription. That means 549 didn't out of 550, which means that 0.20% did. 0.20, one out of 550. They go on to say that um, the proportion was as high as 1 in 32 among patients receiving 200 milligrams of morphine equivalent dose per day or higher. That's clever. 200 or higher. It's clever writing. I better read you something else because I'm about to talk to the person who wrote this. Her name is Catherine. And I'm taking this uh, completely out of context. I'm just reading a few lines from her email. They cut my prescription by more than half, as due to those notes on NetCare, if my doctor prescribes outside of what the specialists from TO determined was best, my GP would be charged with malpractice. You have to be kidding me. This regimen is the only thing that has kept me out of the hospital for 17 months. I've never gone that long since 2010. So this is what government is doing Oh, and on top of them implementing this radical change, you would think that they would make accessibility to pain management doctors readily available, right? Heck no. I've been on the waiting list for three years and was just told I'm still at least a year away from even getting to a consult. Oh, dear, I could just keep going, but this letter has taken me all morning to write. Fear not. I'm also trying to plant my garden. I must take frequent breaks due to pain. This is when I add a new paragraph, so I apologize if it's coming off as disjointed. There's another line in this email. So now the talk about the government and what they are doing, which really equates to torture to someone like me. Okay, we're going to talk to Catherine when we come back. We'll find out what she's living with. 
And then you decide if she's the problem. You decide. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This issue is so disturbing, and I wasn't going to talk about it this weekend, except for the fact that the press secretary for the Federal Minister of Health, Dr. Phil Pott, contacted me about the minister being on the program. Let me talk to Catherine, who joins us today. Catherine, I read from your uh, email, and I, I thank you for, uh, for writing and uh, getting in touch with me. You're experiencing a very, very difficult time. What can you share with us about, about what you're living with, how you're being treated, and what you need? Hi, Roy. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just coming off of the cold here. Um, it's been a really long road. Um, I was faced with, uh, you know, as I stated in my email, my first trip to the hospital was in 2010. Didn't know what the heck it was, and it, I had gone into the hospital and excruciating abdominal pain. So that's when everything started. And I'll, I'll spare you the details from from 2010 until last January when I finally got diagnosed. Um, they had found a random genetic, I, I refer to it as a blood disorder. Um, it's called hemochromatosis um, in me. And, and quite generally, there's, there's a good amount of the population that does have that, but they usually know they have it. So... Um, what happens with that disease is that your body creates more iron um, than your body needs, and you also can't get rid of it. So essentially, my body was poisoning itself with high iron stores and the liver is your poison center. So uh, it was collecting in my liver, most specifically, but um, it also affected my stomach, stomach lining, and uh, there's a little bit of damage to my heart where I have a longer QT level, and um, I experienced some fainting spells. Uh, anyway, at that point, they had assessed that the damage to my liver had, had been extensive, and I, I would have to get on the liver transplant list. So I completed all the terms to get on that list. And um, now I've, you know, been kind of living decently, um, since since we figured everything out, uh, my doctor and I figured out a, a good drug regime for me to be able to work because you have to remember during that whole time, 2010 till 2016, I could barely work because they had no idea what was wrong with me. So um, we figured that out, and uh, like I said in my email, I was, kept out of the hospital for 17 months. And then um, this edict comes down in April, I believe it was April, um, where the government all of a sudden has their nose in my business. And I am just a regular human being trying to make a living, trying to live with my pain and and make like work. I have a passion for life, I wanna live it. I live close to the mountains, I love to hike, I want to be out there doing things, and um, if I don't have those drugs, I can't live my life. By no means do I get high or, 
anything like that. It just allows me to live. So now because of the liver damage, um, I'm not able to take anything that's acetaminophen based. Um, I have stomach ulcers, duodenitis. And this is all based, uh, this all comes from the hemochromatosis. And um, so I can't take ibuprofen based pain. Um, so you have you have pain twenty four seven. That's correct. And doctors love to, and the medical system loves to say, ask on a scale of one to ten, where's your pain? And that's a that's a dopey question to ask, because it, it's hard to answer for pain patients. I've been told that a hundred times. One pain patient will answer it one way, another pain patient will answer it another way. Is it yeah. severe? Is it moderate? Is it mild? That's a lot a lot more sensible, I think. But your pain, um, let's use that scale of 1 to 10, simply because they use it. Uh, where, where are you normally on that? Well, with the, with the drugs regimen that we were on, um, I was steady at about a 3 to a 4. Okay, and without them? Oh, 7. 7, and that's, that's walking a really fine line. If, if anything happens to disturb my day... I'm right up at a 9 and a 10. And then you're done. You can't do anything. Done. Hey, it's 7. I'm on the couch. You can't you walk. Know. You can't no. work. You can't no. do anything. My parents have to carry me. Can't do anything. And so the doctor and you work out a regimen that, that helps you deal with the pain, and you're at that 3 or that 4, which you find manageable. A lot of people yeah. find 3 or 4 not manageable. No, it's, it's tough, but I, I didn't want to freeze my brain. Right. So you're on that you're on that pain regimen, and it's and it's helping you as for at least control the pain, so you can go on with your life. And then suddenly, along and they've been they were building up to it, but all of a sudden now, we have doctors who are in a panic, many because yeah. of the guidelines, which aren't guidelines or edicts. You have doctors who are afraid to prescribe, and your doctor says to you, "What?" Well, he warned me that it was coming down the pipe. Um, now he had informed me, oh, I'm not exactly sure when, but early on in the year that he was on a watch list, that, that list that you were talking about. Yeah. So if a doctor has six people, six patients, they're on the watch list. Yes. So he had informed me of that. And, um, so he, he prepared me kind of, but I figured that there would be a, an answer you know, it's like a replacement or something. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. No. Nothing. No. How much? So, so, how much? What per, what percentage does he does he feel he must, according to what governments now demand? Although they'll say, well, we're, you know, we're working on things. They'll double talk you to death. Mm-hmm. Um, what percentage does he feel he has to drop? Fifty percent? Seventy five percent? How how far does he have to take you down? I believe he said sixty percent. So what does that do to you? Oh, I, I, I cry in his office every week. Um, sorry, I'm feeling a little emotional. I'm trying to fight that back right now. Um, We're on your side. I'm sorry? We're on your side. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what I'm going to do. 
But, uh, but if, it's, if it drops at 60%, does that effectively end your ability to live your life the way you want? Does it, affect yes. your, uh, does it stop your ability to go out and work and make a living? Yes. And you, then you wouldn't be eligible for any social programs, I imagine. No, I'm not. So they're going to cut your medicine, yes. destroy your life, yes. and give you nothing to, to lean on. So um, I'm very fortunate in that my parents have, have the ability to help me. But, you know, I'm 42 years old. I, I'm, I'm an independent woman. I've gone to university to build a career and have my own life. So to have to ask my parents to help me with my mortgage is horrific. And only because... They tell you you can no longer have the medication that you require in order to treat a physical ailment. That's correct. That would be like telling a heart patient, we can, we can't, sorry, we can't do the angioplasty for you anymore. We can give you, we can give, do something, but we can't do that. We can't save, we can't, we can't help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, there's such a stigma attached to this. Yeah. Catherine, please hold on. Could sure. you do that? I'm going to come back. We'll talk some more. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Catherine, what, um, what are you going to do if, you're, if your meds are cut by 60%? You're living with this horrific pain issue, the health issues that you're dealing with that you described to us. The fact that you won't even get a consult with a pain specialist for three years. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, in the guidelines, they talk about, well, what we'd like to do for pain patients, we'd like them to see a family doctor, a kinesiologist, a psychologist, um, a, a, a psychiatrist, um, a nurse practitioner. Show me one place in Canada where that is possible, ministers or, 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 or lab coats, walking lab coats. Show me one where one place in Canada, I don't mean to disrespect you, I'm just pissed off. Uh, you show me one place in Canada where that's possible. We live in a country where four million people don't even have a family doctor, and you're talking about having these grandiose teams ready to spring into action and help? What a bunch of malarkey. What are you going to do, Catherine? I'm sorry well, about my language. Oh, no, I, I'm cheering you on. <laughs> um... My family doctor has, you know, supported me using uh, medical marijuana, but then there's a catch there, too. If I use medical marijuana, I'm disqualified from the transplant list. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. And and, and they're just saying, we don't care about any of that. We're cutting your meds by 60%. Good luck to you. And, you know, when I was on the break there, I, I thought of something that I just wanted to address. I'm sure a lot of other people have experienced when I have to go to the hospital um, in extreme pain. They treat you horribly. They, they think you lay, you're a junkie and you're just there to get drugs. And they will honestly make you wait in pain, like screaming, and they'll just walk right out of your room. And I, I don't know why that exists either. The stigma needs to be eradicated. It's, it's unreal. So. so so you're screaming in pain. And the nurses walk right by you. In a hospital emergency room. That's correct. Which you help support through your taxes. That's right. Which you as a, 
it's a human right to have health services, and the politicians brag constantly about how they take care of health care. So you're screaming in pain, and they're walking past you. They're just flat out ignoring you. My father has been there, and he's gone up yelling, not like not rudely, but will somebody help her? And they don't. And then when they finally do come, the pain has reached a level that it needs so much morphine to kill it and bring it back down. That they give you one milligram, and that does nothing. It's horrific. So now, if you were still getting the dosage of opioid pain medications that you and your doctor have worked out to address the pain that is caused by your severe medical conditions, if that hadn't been cut back or if it wasn't being cut back by 60%, if your doctor weren't afraid, if you were still getting the medication that you, that you, have, that you worked out would work for you, does the job that, that you need to have done to bring your pain under control, what happens with your life then? Do you just, you're able to live, right? I'm a normal working human being. I bring in my own living. I, nobody would even know. And you don't run to the street corner to supplement your 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 uh, your, your your opioids, your, which is another picture they try to paint. And and my argument is, they will in fact drive people to the street corners. But you don't do that. You're not one of these people. I don't even think these people exist. No. By and large. No, I'm a professional business person. I I don't do that. I don't. I wouldn't even know where to find it. Catherine, I know. I know that the press secretary for the Minister of Health is listening federally. I know he's listening. Andrew, I know you're listening. Uh, I know that there are people in the ministry listening because they told me they're paying attention to what we're doing, what we're writing, what my my blog pieces are, and what I'm saying on the air, because they repeated back to me what I said and what I wrote. Um, Maybe the minister's listening. What's the message for these federal managers of health care who are engineering a system which you've described is going to hurl you into an abyss. What do you want to say to them? I have a very easy message. Spend one day in my shoes and then then you get to decide because they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, I had one specialist who in all caps wrote on my file, no change to opioids but then the other specialist who had more schooling and had never ever met me said no she needs to be wiped out so all of the people who are reading from their books i'm sorry but you don't learn everything from a book so how about you and i agree to do this Hmm. i'll stay in touch with you week by week And if they proceed to cause you the horrific pain that is guaranteed you by what these doctors say they have to do, according to the federal government and maybe your provincial government, we're going to talk to you when you're in that pain. Okay. And we want them, and, and I, will, I will make sure that what you say is delivered to them. Because I don't think they'd have the guts to listen. 
Okay. No, sure don't. Absolutely. I am on board, Roy. Standing with you and standing with the pain patients, Catherine, don't worry. I mean, yeah, I can't say that's that's a I mean, don't worry that we won't be there for you. Worry about the people who don't seem to give a hoot about what you're going through or where you'll be. And I, uh, I think it's absolutely horrific. It's abysmal. It's, it's counter to anything that's even marginally civilized. Well, it affects all aspects of my life. So you are correct. We'll stay in touch with you. Thank you very much, Roy. Thank you, Catherine. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Do you take care. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Marvin Ross writes on health for the Huffington Post for HuffPost Canada. He's considered one of the best. His most recent column is Ontario's War on Pain Patients. Here's how it begins. Health Quality Ontario just released a report on opioid use that will do nothing but frighten many doctors into refusing to properly medicate their pain patients. The report, which received extensive media coverage, pointed out the doctors and dentists wrote over 9 million prescriptions in fiscal 2015-16 and that it was an increase of about 450,000 prescriptions from 13-14. This represents 14% of the population, so 86% did not get prescribed an opioid. What percentage of the 2013-14 population received prescriptions? They do not say. My reaction is, so what? The so what for them is to show just how dangerous all these prescriptions are and how that may be leading to all the overdoses, deaths that we're reading so much about. That is nonsense, fear-mongering and avoiding the real problem. Uh, Marvin also writes, we are also being bombarded in the media with stories of fentanyl overdoses. Interesting then to see that Health Quality Ontario reports that only 1% of pain prescriptions is for fentanyl patches and that is down from 2%. Marvin Ross, thank you for writing what you wrote. Oh, thank you. So, Marvin, please share with us what needs to be understood. What what do you what are some of the facts, figures, and 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 uh, and and numbers which people need to know? Well, first of all, doctors are prescribing for their patients what their patients require, and if the patient is in pain, they require pain medication. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and there is no indication whatsoever that giving a patient pain medication will turn them into addicts. Uh, in fact, the, the hysteria about prescribing opioids reminds me of what used to be said about the evil weed marijuana. One puff of marijuana and you'd become a heroin user. Now, marijuana is going to be legal. Uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union used to get hysterical, and probably they still do if they exist, that one sip of the demon rum will turn men into wife beaters and child beaters. And we know that's absurd. And it's just as absurd to think that prescribing somebody an opioid uh, for their legitimate pain is going to turn them into an addict. There's no evidence whatsoever that that is the case. Um, the statistics, the Canadian Pain Society uh, put out some statistics, and I think it was, uh, here it is, 4.8 to 5% of people who get opioids 
become addicted to them. And if um, you have no uh, addiction personality, the, oh, sorry, I was actually, I'm wrong. It's only 3.2% of people with chronic pain develop abuse or addictions. And it's 0.19% of those who don't have an addicting personality who develop an addiction. So this is really nothing but fear-mongering. And, you know, I, I really think that the officials know that. They're just trying to take our attention away from the fact that the problem is really illegal drugs coming into the country. And they make no distinction between the illegal drug user, or as I call them, the generic addict, and and the pain patient. They they mix and match the numbers like a mad goulash. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, after I wrote this, I tweeted it to Dr. Josh Tepper, who is the CEO of Health Quality Ontario. Who, who published those nine million yeah. numbers. And he tweeted back, good, ar- good article. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I should also point out, I've had a lot of doctors retweeting this or indicating on Twitter that they liked it. You know, the doctors and the pharmacists know this is nonsense. And I really wonder, Ontario's health minister is a doctor. He should know better. He should know better. Uh, Jane Philpott, the federal health minister, is a doctor. She should know better. They do, Marvin, they do know better. I know they do. They know better. But it doesn't seem to matter to them that they're... And I spoke with... I don't know if you heard Catherine on the air with me uh, just before we were speaking with you. No, I... But she is going through hell, and she has serious medical conditions, and only her pain meds, or opioid meds, allow her to live a normal life. Right. They're cutting her back by 60%. That will make her completely incapable of carrying on a life. Zero. And it will increase the, the health care costs to yes. society. Yes. You know, which is totally stupid. Now, I had somebody say to me, Roy, think about it. A million and a half people are, are chronic pain patients. A significant number of those, maybe all of them, to a certain extent, will take opioid meds. Opioid meds are expensive. It's an aging population. More and more people, as the population ages, will suffer chronic pain. That means more opioids. That means more expenses uh, for an overburdened financially health care system. So what they're doing is they're cutting expenses at, at, the, at, the, at the expense of people who need the medication. Now, that's a cynical point of view, but Marvin, I found it very hard to argue against that. Well, actually, you're quite right, because I did an earlier article um, Anybody who is on disability in Ontario or over the age of 65, their prescriptions are paid for. Um, But what the province has done is refuse to pay for opioids of a high dose. So these are drugs that are legal. They've been approved for use by Health Canada and the FDA in the U.S., a doctor can prescribe them. So if I have a, a drug plan, a private drug plan, it will be covered. Or if I have enough money, I can pay for it. But if you're a disabled person on social assistance or over 65 with limited amounts of money, 
the province is now refusing to pay for They're it. They're out of luck. But the stupid thing... And I have 20 seconds, Marvin. I'm sorry. Okay. The health quality report said because of that, doctors are prescribing more of the lower doses of the opioids. Yeah. So self-defeating. I'm going to stay in touch with you and ask you to come back on the program maybe as early as next weekend. Would that be okay? Yeah, I'd love to. Because I think the federal health minister may be joining us next weekend, although after this hour, who knows? Yeah, I hope I'd love to talk to her. Well, I will line you up. Okay, great. Thanks, Marvin. All the best. Thank you. Marvin Ross wrote an excellent, excellent piece in the Huffington Post, Ontario's War on Pain Patients. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're joined by uh, two people I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and we're going to speak to the issue of terror attacks, politicians' generally vacuous statements after such horrific attacks and what has to be done. Rahil Raza at rahilraza.com is the president of the Council of Muslims Facing Tomorrow. She's a Canadian author, their jihad, not my jihad, public speaker, educator, consultant for interfaith and intercultural diversity, and uh, Rahil writes in her most recent column, Manchester, how do we grieve with you that, quote, the single most effective weapon the enemy uses is Islamophobia. Rahil, good to speak with you again. Thank you for having me. Also back with us, Dr. Zudi Jasser, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. He's the author of The Battle for the Soul of Islam, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander. He's a cardiologist and past president of the Arizona Medical Association. Zudi, uh, it's been a while. Thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you. It's always great to be with you, Roy, and humbling to join uh, Rahil. Good to be on with you. Hello, Zudi. Hi. Let me start with this. Um, Following the Manchester attack, we heard the politicians mouthing platitudes again. We hear, Manchester, we stand with you. No one will destroy our free societies. We will win this generational war. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying this, but it seems to be the core message, and I really don't want these people leading me down a wide-open street in the middle of the day, let alone leading the battle against terror. We also had the uh, Lord Mayor of London saying, essentially, get used to it. It's part and parcel of living in a big city. He's been loudly criticized for saying that, but is he correct given the overall um, response that we're hearing? Rahil, let me ask you to please start with, with this. For anyone to say, get used to it, is, uh, you know, really taking the coward's way out. Uh, this is not the way the, the world, the glo- global society, deals with uh, issues like this, with terrorism. Since 9-11, we've had politicians saying exactly that, you know, either looking for uh, reasons, it's a lone wolf, when you know that it's never a lone wolf, And the platitudes, uh, our organization, we are fed up of that. It's time for action. How many more children have to be killed before we stand up and take action? Uh, You know, after the fact, we have law enforcement in many of these cases saying that they knew the suspect, that they they had been tracking them. Well, my question is, why didn't they do anything? So I think we are definitely over and done with, with the platitudes. And yes, of course, we are all sorry, always uh, very saddened and deeply, deeply hurt when something like this happens. But it's not enough to just say words anymore. It's time to do what actually Dr. Jasset coined the word, tough love, and, uh, you know, start taking some action. So, Sudi, uh, what kind of action has to be taken? And is the fact that we hear these platitudes over and over again, does it suggest that they're devoid of ideas or are they just unwilling 
to take the steps that are, that are necessary to be taken because it's a politically correct world. Yeah, I think, Roy, there's a couple things going on. One is this sort of ethnocentrism where everything just sort of uh, focuses on Muslim minority and, and the West and what use they can have in using that minority for political partisan issues and sort of check the box that they're defending the minority and they're ignoring where Canada, where the U.S., where the West is right now in history. And the Islamic world, these acts of terror being done in London and in the West and San Bernardino and elsewhere are simply the tip of the iceberg of a, a roiling revolution that's happening inside the hearts of Muslims. And Muslims are a quarter of the world's population. And as much as it has been refreshing to see President Trump sort of identify the issues, change this sort of uh, left uh, um, anesthesia, if you will, uh, he also saw the opening of a counterterrorism center in Riyadh. And that is in many ways absurd because the Saudis are no more going to change the ideas that are the underbelly of this than uh, uh, any other radicals are. And the issue is, is we need to do the work in the West that you can only do in the West, which is to begin to confront the nonviolent ideas that are the precursors. This guy, before he put on his suicide belt, for months and years was being conditioned by nonviolent Islamist groups and the left to say that America was the problem, the West was the problem, it is our fault, the Muslims are, are persecuted, they're victims. All the Muslims killed in the Muslim world are not killed by their own tyrants, but they're killed by Western policies. These are parts of the radicalization process that we need to finally address. And you can only do it here in Canada and in the U.S. You just can't do it in the Middle East. Rahil, um, in the column that you wrote about Manchester, you wrote this. The single greatest weapon terrorists have and use is the word Islamophobia. Explain that, please. Well, in Canada, we now have uh, motion, you know, M103. Uh, which is uh, a motion about Islamophobia and this idea of the victim ideology. No matter what happens, there are Islamist groups right here in Canada who are telling Muslims that you are the victim. Uh, the first thing that you need to be careful about is that you know uh, you are not being attacked or that you are not being maligned. And this becomes uh, you know a tool for them. This concept of Islamophobia, the concept of victimhood, and you know uh, Zudi just mentioned this as well. Uh, the whole concept of the nonviolent extremism, the nonviolent uh, jihad, is to build up this ideology among our youth that no matter what happens and where it happens, that they are somehow the victims. And in Canada, it's very big, as you know. One, the, there was a, there is a connection to the Manchester bomber with an Ottawa imam. And, you know, this was published in the National Post by Stuart Bell. So we just have to connect the dots. None of these incidents, no matter where they happen, whether it was Florida, San Bernardino, uh, Canada, Manchester, they're all connected. It's all part of the same evil ideology. It's all part of the same virus. And, you know, you have a doctor on the line, he'll tell you if there's a virus, it needs to be acknowledged, identified, isolated, and then eliminated. We are at the first level where we can't even sit down around a table together, Muslims, non-Muslims, civil society, our law enforcement, and talk about the issues so we can put together some strategies to deal with this before it's too late. Uh, when, when is it too late, uh, Zudi? I, I had an email about half an hour ago, and I'd mentioned you were going to be on, and, and, and someone wrote... What about Portland 
and referring to that individual who, I think it was yesterday, began to berate uh, two Muslim young women, one wearing a hijab, and then he decided uh, he was confronted by people on on the uh, train, I think it was, and he took out a knife and he killed two people who were intervening and stabbed someone else. Um, And now we find out that he's a white supremacist and he's had criminal um, record. But people start to look at that and say, well, that's one side of it and Manchester the other. How do we resolve this and are more of these situations inevitable? I don't know if I'm making. I don't know if I'm presenting the the argument or the or the question properly. Oh, you are, and and uh, the the issue is we have to be careful not to fall into this sort of moral equivalency argument. I did a podcast after the Quebec uh, shootings happened at the mosque, where you had six Muslims who were killed uh, apparently for a hate crime, and uh, yes, we need to rally around uh, those individuals who are attacked because of who they are. We can't let the terrorists change who we are in the West, which is a melting pot that is based on an idea of freedom and does not is blind to religion, race, and, and ideas. But the concept of Islamophobia, as Rahil laid out, is the racialization of an idea. Islam is an idea. And the best way to melt away bigotry, I mean, any of us who are active in this will acknowledge that there is palpable bigotry that exists in the West against Muslims. But it is nowhere near the problem level of what global political Islam is that runs massive republics like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, are Islamic republics run by Sharia law, that you can't do the moral equivalency to say that a deranged supremacist on a subway in Portland or a guy who shoots up a mosque in Quebec is of the same level of threat to societal peace of freedom as these global Islamic supremacists where Islam is in that time in history that the West was in the 15th, 16th century. So the two things are not comparable. And last, Roy, if you want, we as Muslims want to melt away that bigotry, the best way to do it is for the West to see us lead the fight against jihad, to be the reformers, to say that, you know what, if you want to win this war, we have to be your best assets and lead that. That's the best way to do it, not to exaggerate the victimization and make us into sort of this weak, inferiority complex group that has to be protected then allows that one islamic message from saudi arabia to dominate who we are as muslims you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml Rahil, let me just read a, a few lines from your column and then i want to tie that in with what trudeau has said about citizenship and convicted terrorists You wrote, uh, again, the single most effective weapon the enemy uses is Islamophobia. So if we ask tough questions, it's not acceptable. If we want to know the reasons why jihadists are killing our children, they call it Islamophobia. So essentially, dialogue and discussion around the ideology surrounding a global jihadist insurgency are not welcome because we now live in a world where political correctness is the norm and word police are out to get you if you go over the prescribed limit on word usage. So, we have a prime minister who says, terrorists will not lose their citizenship. We have a motion before Canada's parliament which seeks to protect religion but will defend against Islamophobia. Of course, there's no definition of what Islamophobia is. We know that the MPs will come back supporting that motion. Putting all that together, do we have a potential scenario where the West could lose this entire, what's been called, generational conflict, Rahil? 
I do believe so, but I want to come back to your critical question about uh, Canadian citizenship being granted to, to terrorists. You know, as a proud Canadian citizen, I find it extremely offensive that the value of Canadian citizenship is so cheapened that it comes without a sense of responsibility. To me, Canadian citizenship is about loyalty to the land in which we live and about uh, concern about the safety and security of this land that we call home and which is the home of my children and my grandchildren. And terrorists are not concerned about the safety and security. In fact, they are a threat to the safety and security of this land. So for our prime minister to say that they will be granted back their citizenship is so offensive. Uh, and of course, uh, it, this brings us back into this whole idea of losing our freedoms, losing our liberties. I mean, this is why uh, my family and I came to Canada, is so that we could embrace the values of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, a liberal, small l, liberal democracy, gender equality. And all that is at stake now because our freedoms are being challenged. Um, I mean, are we living in a police state where people can't talk about Islam and Muslims? I question that. Zudi, your thoughts on what's going on in the United States? Well, I think it's it's really, uh, uh, you know, Raheel really hit the nail on the head in that we have the citizenship issue is at the core. And if you're going to begin a program for national security, it has to get to this issue, not just of counterviolence, which is too vague and actually ends up being this needle in a haystack where you're waiting for that moment when people appear to be violent. But we need to have programs where the government nonprofits, uh, NGOs, et cetera, start to look at what it means to be American, what it means to be Canadian. And until we start to reinvigorate our youth into being loyal, not only about loyalty, but loving and having passion for this country and wanting to join the military, the Brits need to look at why. If you look at the numbers, there were more British Muslims serving in Syria and the jihad, something between 500 to 1,000, than serving in their own military. And there are some studies that have, have given those numbers. And that makes me think, as not only someone who served, but with kids who I'm trying to uh, teach about Islam and coming to terms with being American, we are, that is the generational battle of our time. Because once we come to terms with what it means to be American for our youth, and then we'll be able to defeat the ideas of political Islam and its global jihad, because the jihadists inspire by telling Muslim youth that they would rather die for loyalty to the global jihad than anything else. We can only defeat that not by telling our youth that that's bad, but by giving them some other passion that they'd rather die for. And until the left and the right come together, rather than using us as a wedge, but come together to say that we need to unite to teach our youth that they would know nothing else they'd rather die for than being Canadian and serving this country, uh, we're never going to get close to coming to terms with the threat. Raheel, I can't identify anybody who would steward that argument. I'm sorry, who would, who would? I can't identify anybody on the Canadian horizon who would be willing to steward that argument. I, I just see, I primarily see people who, if you raise the issue, who just want to run away from uh, from dealing with it. Well, we have to keep trying. We've got a new leadership now. Let's see what... Fine. I, mean, I never give up hope. I'm an eternal yeah. optimist. Yeah. And I think that that is something that is extremely important 
um, as we move ahead, and let me add to what uh, Dr. Jasser has said, that you know this is not a Muslim-only problem. We have to deal with this in Canada as a Canadian issue, as a Canadian problem. In America, it is an American problem. We are looking at a global jihadist insurgency. So the you know entire world, literally, especially in the West, has to come together, right. and we have to fight this together. Thank you both so very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk again. Thank you, Raheel Raza. Thank you, uh, Dr. Zudi Jasser. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mr. Shear joins us, and he is now the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and he'll be confronting Justin Trudeau in 2019 for the job of prime minister. Um, Andrew, congratulations. Are you uh, concentrating on the leadership, or are you concentrating on 2019 already? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the two go hand in hand, you know, having good leadership for the party and, and keeping our caucus united and focused uh, will lead to victory in 2019. So it's it's part and parcel. Uh, I've got a great group of individuals in our caucus uh, from all different parts of this country and all different kinds of experience. I'm going to be drawing on the very best of their ideas and their experiences to put forward a, a winning program that will convince Canadians that it's conservative policies that will address the concerns going into the next election. So at the time that the leadership convention was taking place, we were looking at the people who had been in the contest for leader, and uh, these are clearly people who will be, will have a following. All of them will have a following within the party. How much of a challenge is it going to be to pull together, you've heard people ask this over the last 24 hours, how will much of a contest or how much of a challenge will it be to pull together all the diverse parts of the Conservative Party into one united party to take on Justin Trudeau's Liberals? Well, it's never simple. Uh, you know, the Conservative movement, the history of the Conservative movement in Canada is full of examples of, of, uh, of us breaking apart and spending time in the wilderness, coming back together again and winning. And I guess now it's up to me to convince my colleagues and encourage them to focus on things that bring us together. My message to, to, to our caucus tomorrow will be, you know, no matter what kind of conservative you are, a, a social conservative, a fiscal conservative, a fiscal libertarian, a, a democratic reform conservative, uh, when the liberals are in power, it's bad for all of us. So uh, that, that's going to be my message, that let's put aside the things that we can't agree on and tick some boxes uh, on, on the issues that we can agree on and that we can achieve success on. Is there one issue which binds you all together? Yeah, I, I do. I, I believe that you know uh, fiscal discipline and fiscal responsibility does. But I think over the overarching principle, the kind of thirty thousand foot level uh, uh, fundamental principle, is that the solutions to challenges facing Canadians don't always have to come from government. That government doesn't do very much very well, but that. The government can create the conditions for success and, and, and partner with you know, the private sector, with the volunteer sector, with community organizations. But that you know, when, when government intervenes and, and government tries to be all things to all people, it almost invariably makes things worse. Where is the current government of Justin Trudeau most vulnerable, do you think? I think when young people realize that they will be spending uh, their entire working lives paying off the debt that he is racking up, I think that, that, that they will more and more become outraged. You know, this year it's over $20 billion in, in, in debt uh, has been added to, to, to the national debt. And, uh, you know, people, my kid, people my kid's age uh, or, or older, you know, people just entering the workforce will spend 30, 40, 50 years maybe paying back 
the spending that Justin Trudeau is, is racking up today, it's the equivalent of a parent leaving all their credit card bills for their kids to start paying off. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, do you have enough time to pull it all together and have a... Everything in place that you need to have in place. I know you've done very well in fundraising. The party's doing very well as far as election funds are concerned or running uh, up to the election is concerned. But do you have enough time to pull it all together and present a cohesive message to the various and disparate parts of this country? We're often more regional than we are national. Do you have the time to get it done before the election campaign begins? And it begins long before the writ is dropped. Well, I believe I do. And, you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're in great shape. We had a great quarter fundraising and, and you know people who aren't engaged in party politics might not under, you know realize the significance of that but, but there, there are thousands of new people who dipped into their own pockets to, to chip in to help us get our message out because they are motivated to replace the liberals in 2019 we our membership grew from 80,000 to 260,000 that's tremendous and you know I'm, I'm used to taking on big challenges when when I got nominated in 2004 to run for the conservatives in Regina Capel I went up against a 34-year NDP veteran, a big name in the NDP, and, and I won. And a lot of people told me I was too young to be Speaker of the House of Commons. But, uh, you know, I, I earned the trust and, and support of my colleagues in the House of Commons. And I am going to pour everything I have in the next two years to making sure that our party is ready, that we have a compelling message, and that we earn back the trust from Canadians in the next election. What are you going to say when somebody says... You are too young. When they say, look, you said uh, Trudeau was, the Conservative Party said Trudeau was too young. One of our callers made the point earlier today, Trudeau was too young at 43. Here's Andrew Scheer at 38. He'll be 39, pushing 40 by the time the election rolls around. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I know I know you're not, but what do you say? Well, I, I, I will promise not to use uh, Justin Trudeau's old age against him, <laughs> uh, even though even though I think it's time for my generation to finally have uh, have its place at the table. Uh, you know, we, uh, the Conservative Party in the last campaign, you know, obviously ran ads not so much about Justin Trudeau's age, but just about uh, his experience. Um, obviously, though, that, that message didn't didn't resonate. So, you know, I, I believe that uh, we're going to have a completely different message in in 2019. And I think uh, you know a lot of new voters uh, it participated in the last election. A lot of young people voted for the first time. And I believe my, my, my age, my, my, my new approach, my fresh face on the party will be an advantage. Well, I wish you all the very best and uh, get some rest after the campaign. Spend some time with your wife and your children and, and just enjoy the fact that you're the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And take the odd drive when you're back in Ottawa. Just take the odd drive around 24 Sussex. <laughs> I will do all of those things and I uh, appreciate you inviting me on the show. All right. All the best, Andrew. Thank you. Andrew Shear, the new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I just viscerally like the guy. I do. And, um, I mean, I've, I've said that about, uh, I know you're going to say it was just because he's conservative. Well, many of you will remember that a certain individual by the name of Jack Layton was a pretty good pal of mine. And Jack and I would not have agreed that today is Sunday. But I viscerally liked him. He was a nice guy. We had a confrontation in the studio. He stormed out. I don't have to take this, he said. And I said, no, you don't. Leave. So he said, I'm leaving. And Jack stormed out the door, and I was talking to him all the way down the hall in the speaker saying, hey, who's going to be embarrassed by this? Not me. It'll be you. So Jack came back into the studio. We sat down and we talked, and we needed him again three days later. And I thought, oh, he's never going to come on. And he came on right away. There was never any bitterness. There was never anything in the way of 
holding a grudge. I always really liked Jack Layton. We never agreed on anything. Really, we wouldn't have agreed that today's Sunday. But I liked him. I like Andrew Shear. I do. Anyway, there'll be lots said and lots to comment on, and we will watch his performance as the leader of the Conservative Party. He now has the responsibility of getting conservatives back into the run the government of this country and take it away from... What's his name? Justin. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.